0: Welcome and thank you for joining us today for the Family Perspectives podcast. This podcast is created by students and faculty in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. We believe that relationships are central to living fulfilling lives. And like any skill or expertise, relationship intelligence can and should be improved and developed. In this podcast, we'll turn to the experts for knowledge and tips to help you improve your relationship IQ. I'm Misha. And I'm Eliza. And we're your hosts on today's episode. Our focus to improve our relationship IQ this month is marital enhancement. So for today's podcast, we are going to dive into principles for smart marriages. We are excited to be meeting with professor and marriage and family therapist, Dr. Dean Busby. Dr. Busby is a professor at BYU and has taught for more than 30 years. He was in academic administration for 12 years and has published many great books and research articles primarily in the area of marriage and sexuality. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Busby. My pleasure. To start off, it seems that the institution of marriage and how individuals view marriage has changed significantly over the last few decades. We are wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about these changes and what you have observed from working with couples in
1: modern marriages. That's a great question for me in particular because I started studying marriage over 30 years ago when it was a lot simpler. We did our first surveys with couples everybody knew what dating meant everybody knew what marriage meant everybody knew sort of sequences and all of that now is up in the air in fact we can't use the word dating anymore on our surveys because people don't date you know they just have hookups or they have hanging out or different labels and different things and the sequencing's all funny and so it's much harder to get good information now because we've really changed dramatically And what I teach students about this question in particular is there has been no time in the history of the world where changes have occurred this dramatically in a fundamental social unit like related to the family. So we have seen just in our lifetimes a revolution and change, most of it for the worse in terms of what we think of in terms of uh, traditional values, but not all. all. Some things have improved for the better. But as importantly, just the naming, the nature, the you know the way things work in terms of marriage has been really fundamentally shifted. I think the biggest change has been in the expectation now that cohabitation precedes marriage. And we're up in the close to 80-some-odd percent now couples that marry have cohabited before the marriage. And so that's now seen as sort of what you're supposed to do before you marry, when I first started in my career, it was abnormal. We called it shacking up still, <laughs> had negative <laughs> labels to it. And uh, and really the percentages of couples that cohabited before marriage were very, very low, 10%, you know, very low. And now it's, you know, almost all couples. And so if you don't cohabit, you're actually atypical. People say, what? How can you get married without cohabiting? And so you can see that shift that's turned all the way up. And then the other one, of course, is that most people think that in order to get a career that they need to be successful at, they need extensive training beyond high school. And then they don't feel prepared to be married until their careers are fully moving. And that has expanded from what used to be, you know, you married right out of high school, 18, 19, 20, 21. And now because of Having to go to school and then feeling like you're not ready yet to be married until you're financially stable. It's pushing things close to 30. And, uh, and so there's a whole nother decade there of life between high school and marriage. And so couples have shifted their thinking to it's sort of the capstone achievement of your life instead of this beginning cornerstone that you start out and become an adult and marry and then you move on. There's a few exceptions to those trends nationally in some subgroups, but not many anymore. I was just
0: wondering if the research on the trends associated with later marriages, are there any negative outcomes they've found with that or how it's impacting people?
1: So the divorce rate has gone down since the high times that were close to 50%. I think the highest time was early 80, somewhere in there. And it's now low 40s. And when people try to explain why they think that divorce rate has gone down, primarily they suggest that that is because teenage marriage is now abnormal. And not most people think of it as something inappropriate to marry when you're teens. And so that has been a positive. If you marry when you're a little more mature into your 20s, then you're going to be more stable and have a better sense of how to get along with people. Teenagers aren't ready for marriage. They're not ready for having kids. Um, you know, and some people ask me, well, I'm only 19. Is that okay? I, mean, I don't think that little bit right before 20 is going to make a big deal. But we, we have not found any advantages to delaying marriage beyond the teens. So in, even the early 20s, you're not in any worse shape or better shape than somebody that marries at 28 versus 22 or, you know, but we have found some negatives with post-30 marriages. So as you go longer with, you know, now we're looking at almost a decade and a half being single, then you start having trouble making the transition to marriage as easy as those who are younger in their 20s. And so there's this little window of time there. Usually we just say the 20s are the ideal time if you can. And of course, some of us don't have a choice there, but there isn't any real advantage to waiting till beyond 20. There is a disadvantage to marry as a this teenager, so, so that's a positive.
0: Sometimes it seems like unhappy relationships are all around us, and the prevalence of divorce can certainly be disheartening. As we've talked about, many people choose to delay marriage or cohabit first because of the fear of entering into a marriage that may eventually fail. What are some things that could alleviate this fear?
1: Another good question. I think uh, there is no question that this generation is more anxious about marriage than ever. I call it not a neurosis because neurosis means it's beyond reality. In other words, their fear of divorce is greater than the reality. And so one of the things I try to explain is there's some very controllable variables that you can have in your life that reduce the chances of divorce to so move it from the 40% that it is now to much, much lower to the point where it's very unlikely that you would get divorced. Those things are things like get an education, people who make, you know, from middle to upper class wages, marriage is easier for them, family life, you know, poverty is difficult. So that helps. That's something we can control. And education helps a lot with that. Marry somebody who's of your same faith. Have a faith. That helps. Going to church is a protective factor from divorce. And then having, you know, a common faith between partners is another protective factor. Delay having children until you're married. So people that come into marriage pregnant or in other situations, then that's a risk factor. So you can control that as well. And in our faith, we say marrying the temple, that's a substantial reduction in the chances of divorce. Some of the things you can't control, but a lot of people still sort of have as a bonus is if their parents weren't divorced, they have a a better likelihood of having a successful relationship. And then I say, and none of those things have to do with how you treat your partner, which is the most important thing. So you can get the divorce rate very low by these things I just talked about. And then if you happen to just say, well, I want to be a good spouse, treat my partner with respect and love, then your chances of divorce are practically nothing. I mean, it's, it's really very, very low. So it is a neurosis. It's not not an anxiety about a fear that's likely to happen if you make certain choices.
0: I wonder if in our culture, people sometimes worry about finding the right person. What do you have to say about
1: that? It's interesting because some highly religious people think, well, no, there's multiple people. It's not the one. But then when you really ask them specifically, what do you mean by that? And they say, well, I want to make sure that it's somebody who I think God approves of, then it starts to sound like the one again. I mean, it's just a different kind of the one where you have it be a spiritual confirmation rat, whereas somebody else might have be the one that I just fall head over heels. You know, so it's still the one. And so I think everybody wants to choose a partner that will, be uh, compatible, that will be someone that they feel like is going to help them, you know, meet their life goals and values and stuff like that. And that those all sort of boil down to the same thing. I want to meet that that person that gives me that romantic energy and gives me the support in, in life. So it is a big, it is a big quest. It's a bigger quest than ever. Of course, we know historically people were often had arranged marriages and they did perfectly fine without all that other stuff that we've added. But in many ways, I think it's a better approach than an arranged marriage because having your choice be a central part of that and your feelings make you responsible for that choice and make you work that out a little bit more than, well, my parents hadn't picked this person or whoever the matchmaker was. But it, it does make it more complicated. And in some ways, compatibility has become an idea that's over emphasized in the sense of what people mean by compatibility. In other words, no two people are fully compatible and no two people are fully incompatible. We're all sort of, you know, mixed. The differences that we have between ourselves is a good thing, but it can also create challenges. And so what does a person mean when they want to marry somebody compatible? It's really a different list, isn't it, for each person. And those lists are often arbitrary and sort of unusual based upon some of their background characteristics. For example, I'll give you a simple one that always makes me a little crazy. Height. Women in particular do not want to marry somebody shorter than they are. has no relevance at all for happiness in marriage. It's just a preference. It doesn't really matter, but people still, I'm just not going to date anybody that's short. Man. So they choose that arbitrary thing, and it becomes a filter out of which maybe some really good partners that just happen to be an inch or two shorter don't get selected because that's something that's important to them. And so we have to be careful about what our individual criteria are that we're not actually putting something important uh, off the list that should be there versus some of these unimportant things that we have because we're going to have silly preferences.
0: That's a great point. Thank you so much. So now it's important to focus on things that we can control. Like you just said, what are some things that we can do to actively create a lasting, happy marriage once we are married?
1: The beginning of marriage distress is really quite simple and it's lack of attention. It's as simple as that. We don't pay attention to one another. And as soon as I don't feel like my spouse is paying attention to me, then I'm going to start criticizing. I'm going to start saying negative things about her or us or life. I'm going to feel neglected. And then we're going to get into arguments. So the first thing is pay attention. We call those bids and turns that you have to you have to pay attention to the little tiny things that a spouse does to try to connect to you you know put their hand on your shoulder when they come Or you put your hand and touch them you know you make a connection how was your day you don't just say "Eh, okay and just ignore them. You sit down you have a little bit in five minutes talking you you know give each other real demonstrations of affection that connect you and so the reason this is—it's it's almost an epidemic—is that this generation, besides the neuroses, uh, they have constant partial attention. This is their second significant difference in as compared to previous generation? There's too many things that are drawing our attention away from the people in front of us, and they're all having to do with this thing in our pockets and purses that we carry around. That gets people who have no business being in between our relationships in the middle of those relationships at the strangest times that we let them, you know, during conversations that are really meaningful, we'll stop and we'll answer the phone or we'll look at the buzz or whatever it is. And so then what's going on is that breaks our attention, which is the key to connecting. And then the partner gets the message over and over in little small ways. You're not quite as important as you should be to me. Everything else is as important or more important than you. And so then we go down these these conflict traps and we start criticizing and having fights. So you know that's a very controllable thing. Well, I take that back. It, it theoretically it's controllable. What we have not been good at controlling in our technology. We have never been good at it. But when I was a kid, I was we had no TV when I was first a kid. We they weren't weren't around much. And we got our first TV. And, of course, now our nights changed from spending some time together to watching TVs. And everybody started throwing up their heads say the TV is ruined in America. And they were right to a degree. Families were shifting their attention to something outside of the home. And some of them were excessive. And then it was the computers. And then it was the computer gaming. And now it's the you know the cell phones and, and all of that that it brings in. And so it's just accumulated. Now we still have TVs and we still have computers and we still, and so now you have way more devices that are asking you to pay attention to things that aren't as important as your relationships. And you're not doing a good job at it. And it's not because you're weak. It's just because those are very attractive. You know, uh, spouses can be boring and routine and the exciting sales and the exciting messages and tweets and this and that's that are coming across our fascinating to us paul amato did this really fabulous study a number of years ago and said that technically we should have much closer relationships because we're spending more time in each other's presence than ever before in the history of the world but we're talking less as well and so there it is that's this that's a fundamental thing is we have to disengage from the devices and engage here and connect and then we feel loved we feel connected and we stop fighting
0: Do you have any specific tips or tricks that you would advise people to use They could utilize to help them connect?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing, frankly, is to have a media fast. Just knock it out of your life for a week together. Just do it. Go off-grid if you have to. So just get it out of your system, clean your system out, so to speak, and spend the time just together. And it will be a little uncomfortable because we're not used to that level of intensity anymore. And then recalibrate, sit down together say okay now that we've sort of experienced a bit of time without it and we've learned that we can be together a lot more and share more what boundaries do we want to put around our lives so that we can be more attentive to one another and then typically couples are doing things like during meals as an example dinner is a particularly important time for most couples no media leave the phones out of this, the eve room because you won't resist them if you don't you know so that's an example or Maybe it's a different time and different day or different place for them. They just start to set those boundaries up. And so then you have some built-in time where you can be attentive to one another. And that's about all you need to do really is build in regular time, hopefully daily, but at least significant chunks during the week. When you get married, you
0: realize that you and your spouse have a lot of differences. Do you have any advice for couples learning to navigate
1: differences and potential conflict? It's a curious thing, isn't it? We are drawn to our spouses often because of the very differences that they make us crazy once we're married. For example, there's typically one person that's more organized and structured and one person's more free-flowing and flexible. One person, that person typically more creative and they're humorous and they like to joke around and tease and do things spontaneously. The other person like, no, we got to keep to our schedule. We got to keep things organized and clean. Both things are really crucial. In a relationship. And it's fun. Those differences are fun when you're dating. Now you're married and you're trying to keep a house in order, and one person's leaving stuff laying all over the place and wants to just break the schedule and do this and it's getting in the way. And so then you start fighting about something that used to be so attractive. So we we have to just recognize that as you try to build a life together, those different approaches that are important and crucial turn from being something that was attractive to something that's irritating. The change is not because the partner changed, it's because the experience built up and the friction sort of around those different approaches starts to emerge. It's nothing's wrong. It's supposed to happen. And so you should be having some fights. If you're not having fights, you're not being honest with one another to tell the truth. You're avoiding it. And that's just about as bad. Because when you avoid, you have tension and you avoid talking about it, then it builds up and it comes out too strongly. So if I've been irritated, something you've been doing for a whole week, when you do it again, then I fly off the handle rather than first time or two, then I'm just going to say, yeah, I don't like it. It's very subtle and soft. We can work through it rather than I now have an explosion. Would you stop doing that? You know, because you're making me crazy. Because it's not because you're making me crazy. It's because I haven't had the courage to say to you, the things that are getting in my way. And so, don't avoid them. And then when you begin to talk about those differences, recognize that there's going to be a natural process of defensiveness. That as you talk about things that are the way you are as a person, like this person who's spontaneous, what? why are you getting on me about that? That's how come we have so much fun together? You know, so automatically you feel like I'm getting attacked. You're not. And so when you get defensive, you have to be able to track yourself and your partner so that you can deal with that emotional intensity and stop before you get to the place where you'll start injuring one another. And it's pretty simple to pick up. You can see when your spouse is upset and you can feel when you're upset and just taking a little bit of break and then coming back to it and say, I'm sorry, I came across so strong and and let's talk about it again. Just recognizing that there's this tendency to get defensive and then get emotionally sort of flooded and then come back. And keep working through it and and that it's healthy to have those arguments as long as you don't get to this place where you're saying really crude and rude things to each other, you know, that you're keeping it in a range. There's some criticism, there's some defensiveness, there's some things that could have been said better, but they're not mean and they're not, you know, cruel kind of stuff. As you work through that, the working through the differences is actually very crucial for building a better relationship. A place where you can feel vulnerable and really share things that you're struggling deeply with, that you need to share with one another. But if you can't talk about differences like that, then you keep it surface. The connection is too weak, and when you hit difficulties in life where you can't avoid those differences and there's high stress, that kind of stuff, you'll know, you'll get fragile as a relationship. So, fighting's important, and you know people in our culture have a problem with that because they think of fighting as contention. And I try to say contention is when you're getting mean, you know, and differences and learning to negotiate and learning to is just normal relationships. And it means you love somebody when you get to the point where you're spending enough time where that friction's occurring, sort of rubbing against each other's differences. That's a good thing, but you have to manage it and you have to track each other and help each other and keep it from getting to be contentious. But some people, because they might have grown up in a home that was very contentious and hostile, as soon as people, there's tension, they back out and they avoid and they won't allow the conversations to continue. And so then again, they keep that relationship at the surface level. And it's just as damaging as hostility. Avoidance and hostility are the same thing. They're just different sides of that coin. You're not working through your differences in a way that's helping your relationship grow closer
0: Over time in marriages, spouses can come to find that their relationship has grown mundane or stale. Do you have any advice on what we can do to keep love alive long-term in our marriages?
1: Uh, Well, I study sexuality. um, And that's where that kind of energy you're talking about is. That um, creative, passionate, loving intensity is. And it is also one of the areas that can get monotonous as quick as anything. And it's just naturally what happens, and when we repeat something over and over in our relationship. And so the key is allowing yourself to pay attention to your sexuality and noticing those very very early signs of monotony. Well, so and usually it's just very subtle feelings that as you think about being sexual with your partner, there's a sort of sort of I don't know what the boredom feeling is, what to label is. It's just sort of a flat. It starts to feel a little bit flat. Is the earliest sign of that. And so then that tells you that you've lost that creative energy and and sexuality by its nature should be fun and creative. Doesn't mean every time, doesn't mean, you know, every instance, but it means regularly. It should be that it's supposed to be the fun playground of marriage. So, you know, kids, it's, you watch kids when they're not having fun doing something, they stop doing it. And so it's the same with adults when it, when it loses its fun piece, then you're not that interested and then you go apart physically. And the thing about sexuality is it's such a complete experience where it's the body when it's done well it's the body and it's the emotions and it's the meaning of life and marriage um, that it can it has power to really reach into every area of your life if it's done well but if it's done poorly it's the opposite it starts pushing you away pretty fast it starts making you feel unloved it starts making you feel empty because our bodies need touch we need connection, we need all those hormones and things like that go. So keep the sexual energy moving and it takes a little bit of vulnerability and risks, frankly. A little bit I mean, when you have something that's worked for you as a couple and then it's turned into a routine, and then somebody says, Don't you think we gotta try something different? That's that's a little bit of a, a risk, right? And now the partner says, What are you talking about? This is great. And You know, so then you have this opportunity to have discussions, but just being able to risk and say something, we need to do something different. And there's, you know, you can change the setting, you can change the types of activities you you do together, you can change the things you do before sexuality that increase the feelings of closeness. You can, you know, there's a variety of variables that you can, they don't have to be huge. You don't have to go to Hawaii to renew your sex life. It's It's not that complicated. But you do have to take little risk and you do have to do a little, little things differently, try things. And with everything we do in life, when we try new things, at first it's going to be a little awkward. It's just the nature of how we learn and how our muscles look and all that. So the fact that you try new things sexually and it's a little awkward doesn't mean you shouldn't keep trying. You typically two, three, four times try new things and then see if it's something you keep in your sexual activities is, is what you need to do. And so. You know when it comes to that energy we're talking about keeping that marriage and love alive i think the sexuality is the first place you'll notice and it's the first place you want to change something and it will help the most in that relationship
0: thank you so much dr busby for sharing these important principles for building and maintaining smart marriages thanks to our listeners for joining us today we've learned a lot from dr dean busby about how we can improve our relationship iq within marriage Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes exploring other family and human development topics. If you have any questions or inquiries, please email us at byusflpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your listening platform to catch future episodes. Until next time.